have your Bible or you need one, you can grab that one. But we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to cover 10 verses tonight in Exodus chapter 2 as we continue on on this rescue story in Exodus. Uh, Tonight we're going to call this coincidence or faith. All right. Now, coincidences happen all the time, and I found a couple um, that you guys can find pretty easily just through an uh, easy, quick Google search, but I thought that these were very fascinating. Um, I love history, and so when you find weird things in history like this, they call them coincidences. These are kind of wild, though. Like, I, I really found these fascinating. So, uh, there's two guys, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. You may have heard of them. If you haven't heard of them before, they were presidents long ago, okay? John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the second and third presidents of the United States, died on the same day within hours of each other. Now, they were probably around the same age, so that's not too weird, but here's what gets even weirder. They died on July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years after both of them signed the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. That's, that's crazy. Like, that's, like, coincidence? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. All right, here's another one. Um, I actually like this one because I I grew up in this area, and so I know a lot of these names, and so it's just kind of fun for me. This guy named Wilmer McLean was a Virginia farmer who lived near Manassas, Virginia, during the American Civil War. On July 21st, the first major battle of the Civil War, known as the First Battle of Bull Run, or Battle of Manassas, was fought near his farm, practically in his front yard. So he actually liked the Union. He liked the North. And so he thought, well, let me get away from all the fighting. And so he moved to another town in Virginia, kind of in the rural part, the farm country area. He happened to move to this place called Appomattox. Well, Appomattox is great, except for the fact that that's where the Civil War ended when the Confederate Army got basically pinned in in Appomattox. And so this guy literally saw the Civil War start in his front yard, and then the treaty that ended the Civil War was signed in the parlor room, the front room of his house in Appomattox. Crazy. Same dude. That's wild. All right? Here's another one. A total eclipse. When you Google that, you'll get an old 80s song. Some of the leaders might know about this. But there's a total eclipse occurs when the disk of the moon appears to fit perfectly over the disk of the sun. But how is it possible when the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun? The answer is is that the sun is 400 times farther from the earth. Astronomers say there is no scientific explanation for why the geometry should line up this way. Okay, now, at some point you do have to kind of chuckle because how does it just so happen that it exactly fits, right? like there was a creator and then it's like there was a design oh wait that's what we think and believe and know to be true right that god does that it's not a coincidence things don't just happen by random chance there is an order and there's an orchestrator behind all of that and my hope tonight is that as you read exodus 2 you're going to see that a lot of things that were happening were not just random these don't just happen to be, oh, it's a, it's a literature story, so it just happened to work out that way. God planned all these things far in advance, and that's what I hope that we see together. One of the things that I, I think is really hard to do for us, um, especially if you've grown up in church, and if you haven't, it's okay, but if you've grown up in church, you, you are familiar with the, the story of Moses, and so it's sometimes hard to forget what it's like to not know this story, to read it with fresh eyes. Now, if you're reading this or hearing this for the first time, it's kind of a cool thing, but it, for the rest of us, if you've heard it before, it's like, oh, I've got to kind of come to this story anew. I want, try to, I want you to try to do that to the best of your ability. Act like you don't know what's about to happen or what happens later in Moses' life. Because if you do, if you can do that, it will make this story much more rich for you. So here's what it says. Exodus chapter 2. 
verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him there three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, this is the story of how we meet this guy named Moses, which the most of this book of Exodus that we're going to study, he's the main character, other than the Lord, other than God. Moses is the guy that this book really tells us a lot of his story. And many of you guys, like I said, have maybe heard this story before. But, but let's just remember a little bit about what's going on in the moments that lead into this story, right? The Pharaoh is afraid of the Israelite people. And so he goes through different levels to get rid of them. And at, in the moment when Moses' parents decide to get married, as you find in verse 1, It says, man of the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. We'll find their names out later. But but for the the moment, just remember, these two people are getting married in a time of oppression when all the other people in in their nation, all the other people who are like them, their children are being thrown into the Nile River. And basically, they're in the midst of a holocaust or a genocide. Okay, so these two people decide to get married in these types of circumstances, really scary, dark times. On top of that, these two people decide then to have a child. Now, if, if you're reading this for the first time, you've got to start to think to yourself, that's really not a smart idea. Because they're Hebrews, so their kid has a target on their back the moment that child enters the, enters the world. So you've made the decision not only to get married in a difficult time, but now you've made the decision to have a child in this difficult time. That's really not smart, right? It just doesn't seem like that is the right thing to do, which is why this story tonight, and this is the word I want you guys to kind of leave with tonight, this is a story of faith. Moses' birth story is a story of faith, faith in what God is able to do despite what all the other circumstances around you are telling you God might do or God is able to do or you think might happen in your life. This is a story of faith can prove that to you if you go, you don't have to flip there. I have it on the screens for this reason. But Hebrews eleven twenty three, 23, Moses' parents get name dropped in the New Testament. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So even in Hebrews, the writer looks back in the New Testament. He looks back at what Moses' parents decided to do there and says, they acted in faith. They had a child in faith, and then they put this child in a basket of reeds in the Nile River out of faith, believing that the child would not drown, 
and that whoever discovered the child would raise the child and it would survive. They didn't just do this willy-nilly and just take a chance and be like, ah, I really hope that, you know, three, three-month-old Moses can hang tight, you know. They did this in faith. They, they knew that God would protect their son. It even says here, in, in our language, it's hard to translate this word, but it does say that when she bore it, the son, she saw he was a fine child, is what my version says. Some of yours might say he was beautiful or good. They saw something in this kid that was highlighted that God was going to do something with this child. And so they trusted in faith that his life would have purpose and meaning. And they must do everything they can to protect it. Which is why they hid the child for three months. Now you may ask, like, why three months? Well, you know, I've had three children. I've, got, I've gotten all of them past, you know, the diaper stage. They're all in school now, so they've made it. You know, I didn't fail as a parent. You know, I can't keep houseplants alive, but I can keep humans alive. So I'm doing something right, okay? So houseplants, no. Humans, okay. So, so one thing you will know about three-month-old kids, if any of you guys ever have, like, a baby sibling in the house, three-month-old babies, they do a lot of sleeping. It's actually pretty easy to keep them pretty quiet as long as they're happy and fed and they're sleeping a lot. Now, some of you guys are like, not my baby brother, not my baby sister, but it is possible. I'm sorry, guys. I see heads shaking. It is possible. So at three months, though, then the baby becomes a little bit more active, a little bit more vocal. And so at that point, then it's a little bit more difficult to hide the child. And that's why at that point, Moses' mom and dad decided to try to put him into the water to save him. So it's a story of faith. They trusted that God could do something, and God could protect their son. Now, I think it's really important. I know we've got notes again for you guys tonight if you're following along. But, but what is faith? What is the Bible's def- definition of faith? Because so many times, I think faith is just thrown out there as this very, like, spiritual word. And it's kind of like in the clouds. It's this big thought. Nobody really knows how to put their hands around what it is to have faith. And people kind of just talk about, like, man, you just got to have faith. Well, what is that? Like, can I actually have that core feeling or what is it just a feeling or is it a knowledge or what is faith I, I i like to replace the word faith with trust because in our in our in our time faith is just eh, it's kind of like a magical thing spiritualized but trust you guys know what that means because you trust people in your lives right you trust the old classic example the chair you're sitting on to hold you up you trust the roof that was built over our heads is going to be stand throughout the night while you're under it, right? You trust that. You trust that when you go to your car later on tonight, whether you're driving or your parents driving, and then when they stick the key into the ignition and they switch it, that everything in under the hood is going to work and the car is going to start. You trust. That's having faith. Faith, trust. I, I, I see those as interchangeable things. But here's what the Bible says about faith. Hebrews 11, 1, earlier in that chapter we referenced before, this is the definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. So, so the first thing you understand about faith is you have an assurance of what is going to come, and you have this rock-solid conviction that whatever you think is going to happen in the future, hasn't taken place yet, is actually going to take place. So it's an assurance and a conviction. One thing I've known about my life to be true is that if I am assured of something, and it leads me to having a conviction about it, I will act. Faith drives action. Faith will always do that because if you are assured that something is coming in the future, then you have a conviction about whatever that is. When you're convicted on something, it pushes you to act. The easiest one I can tell you, and for my own life, is I was assured and I had a conviction of this. 
that when I first started in ministry, I had a job that I was guaranteed from June to June, okay? By April of that span, right, June to the next April, I had two months remaining in my contract. And I decided in faith, I said, listen, I believe that this is the place that I'm going to be serving. I have a conviction about it. I believe that God's called me there. I have an assurance about this. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to move out to where this place is. I was commuting 60 miles one way for nine, 10 months doing this job. After a while, that got really boring, okay? 60 miles one way, if you want to do the math, 120 miles a day in your car, not super great on gas mileage, especially when you live around Washington, D.C., and there's traffic. So I was convicted and assured that I needed to move. Didn't have any guarantees, but I was convicted and assured. That conviction led me to move. I physically moved 60 miles out to be about 10 minutes away from the church that I was working at because I had an assurance and a conviction that I needed to do it. Faith will do that. Your trust in something will lead you to act, to move. Second thing you learn about faith is a couple verses down, Hebrews 11.3. By faith, by trusting in who God is, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here's what this is telling me, and, and there's so many more things we could go to, but to really quickly, your trust and belief in Jesus, in God, as the creator of the universe, allows you to understand the world as it is allows you to make sense of things in this world that don't make sense. If there is no creator, then when you talk about a solar eclipse and how a small little rock in the sky that is smaller than our planet can eclipse the sun that is so much bigger than our planet, how does that work? Well, it just so happens that there was a designer that did it that way, right? Your faith in Jesus helps you understand the way the world works. So your assurance and conviction of things that are not yet seen, you haven't seen God with your own eyes, but you've seen the results of him. Your faith in him allows you to understand the world that you live in. Lastly, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here's the important thing about your trust in Jesus. You've got to trust in who God is and his character and his ability. His ability is that he created the world out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. He's able, he's powerful enough to do that. You also have to believe in his character, that if you seek him, if you give your life to him, if you chase after him, if you serve him, that he will reward you as you chase after him. He doesn't want to play the old school fair game like whack-a-mole. Where it's like, oh, I think God's over here. And then you try to, and, and then he drops out. And then he pops up over here. And you're like, where did he go? He doesn't play that game with you. You have to believe that he rewards those who want to see God. Those are the two things that faith has to do. It has to motivate you to do that. Because without it, you can't please God as who he is. So that's what the biblical definition of faith looks like. Here's the other thing that we must realize as we read this story and we meet Moses. It's an origin story. So many people love origin stories. Like movies, right? Superhero movies especially. People love a good origin story. Like to know, like, we've seen Spider-Man, like three different, you know, iterations of Spider-Man. We all know how he gets his powers, right? Except for, you know, the last one. They didn't actually show the spider bite. But we just assume that it happened. And then there's this whole, you know, with great power comes great responsibility line that gets thrown in there somewhere. It's always there, right? Everybody loves a good origin story, Okay. Moses' story is the origin story of a savior. 
And this is for a second. I'm just going to give you some really cool Bible stuff that is really neat, and I hope you kind of geek out over it the way that I do, but this is really fun. So when Moses was placed in a basket, in verse 3, it says, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. That word basket is actually the same exact word in Hebrew, tebcha. It's the same word that is used in Genesis for ark that Noah was in. You guys ever get that riddle where people are like, how many animals did, uh, how long did it take Moses to build the ark? Well, technically, if you, and people go, well, Moses didn't build the ark, Noah did. Well, then you can come back with them. If you want to be really smart alecky and go, well, guess what? Moses wasn't an ark. Did you know that? Yeah, now you do. So you can get back at people. But there's a reason why this is important. This is really a, a key moment. The ark that Noah was placed in by God was because Noah was to save the human race. At that moment, all of humanity was killed, except for Noah and his family, safe in the ark. Moses, in the same way, is a rescuer, a deliverer, a type of savior for the Israelites. He's going to be the one, spoiler alert, when we get later in Exodus, who's going to lead them out of the captivity of Egypt. So he's a savior of a type. He's also leading people to a brand new land for a fresh start. Just like Noah, when the waters dropped out and Noah and his family stepped out of their ark, they were led into a brand new land for a fresh start. So, so Noah and Moses are both types of saviors. They are meant to be deliverers and rescuers of people, but you have to understand there's a really key word in that. They are types of saviors. They are not the savior. And that's how we want to end this tonight as, as you get to know this origin story of Moses' life. He is not the Savior. He is a type of Savior. Here's what Hebrews 3.3 3 says about Moses in comparison with the Savior, Jesus. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is counted more worthy of the glory than Moses ever was ever will be. And Moses is pretty spectacular. The things you read in Exodus will tell you that Moses did some amazing things and that the writer of Hebrews says there is a more beautiful, more glorious, more strong, is a stronger savior, the savior is Jesus Christ. Moses is just a type that points us to a better savior, the savior Christ. So as we finish tonight, Here's the central truth. I try to give you one central truth that you can always lock into. The story of Moses, his birth, is a story of faith. And in your faith, you have to trust that God is doing something. That God has always been in the business of creating something out of chaos. He's always creating something out of chaos. He did it in Genesis 1.1. When the earth was formless and void. I love these words in Hebrew. It's Tohu bohu. It means utter, complete chaos. That's Genesis 1.1. If you go back to that and you read that, it says the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. What it does then is it says that God spoke, and he separated the light and the dark, and he started creating. This is what God does. He speaks into chaotic things and creates something brand new out of them. Some of you guys, your, your lives right now feel chaotic. Whether your schedule is out of control, whether your family life is out of control, or, or your friendships are out of control, or, or already school is out of control, right? There are things that feel bigger than you, and you just feel like you can't beat them. And I'm here to tell you that you can see from the story of Moses' birth 
that in the midst of your chaos, God can create something brand new. Maybe for you, it's a actual trust and a relationship with Jesus that you never had before. That in the midst of something super dark, God can work within that to show himself in your life. Maybe for the first time in your life, you will have a new experience of a relationship with your family that you never had before in the midst of utter and complete chaos. Maybe, maybe you'll find God's word to speak to your heart and you'll actually start to maintain it and understand it and apply it in a way that you never had before in the midst of utter chaos. Maybe you've created the chaos in your life and, and you are caught in the traps of sin and God is speaking to you tonight to take you out of that chaos and create a brand new relationship with him. God is always in the business of creating something new out of chaos. Your chaos is nothing new to him. Big or small, he can handle it. He's always in that business. So is it a coincidence or is it faith that Moses was put into that basket? I think this is such an interesting story to think about. If you don't really think about the fact that you know all the other details of this story, think about the Nile River that he was placed in this basket is literally the death waters that all the other Hebrew boys are being thrown into. Like, like, remember back to last week, if you were here last week, this was the plan of Pharaoh. Take all the Hebrew boy children. He calls on the Egyptians. He calls on the Egyptian people. Go find them. When you find a Hebrew child, a baby boy, take it and chuck it into the Nile River. Moses' parents put him purposely into the same exact waters that all the other babies his age are getting killed in. And yet he's safely delivered out of it. It's not coincidence. It's by God's design. This is how God works. He works in the midst of darkness and chaos and trouble. And if Moses is a picture of salvation, a, a, a smaller one of the perfect salvation we have in Christ, see the things that salvation really is. One thing I think is really important. The first one is, it's a real salvation for real people. I think sometimes you read these stories in Genesis and Exodus, and, and, and you, you guys, you think of them, or we sometimes, it's hard. I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying it's hard for us sometimes. We think of them as like fairy tales, right? Like these are just big stories with moral point, and, but these are real people. Like this actually happened in the Nile River, that if you got on an airplane tonight and took the long flight over the Atlantic Ocean and got all the way into Africa and got over to Egypt, the Nile River still exists today. And in those very waters, babies were being thrown into and drowned. And in that very water, there was a three-month-old placed in a basket amongst the reeds that was then pulled out by Pharaoh's daughter. One of Pharaoh's many daughters, by the way. You also think about that? Like, the very person who found Moses was a child that lived in Pharaoh's house. And then what happens? Who raises the baby from zero or three months to essentially two to three years old? His mom. And by the way, his mom was receiving money as a slave to raise her own child. It's not a coincidence. This is all God works these things out. He does this. Don't slip into the trap of reading these stories and coming familiar with them and thinking, oh, that just is like a, of course it happens that way because that's how it's written. No, this is real human history, real people, and God works in them. Why does that matter for you? Because if God dealt with real people and real problems and real issues in real time, 
He'll deal with your real issues, real problems in real time. When you trust in Christ as your Savior, he deals with your sin in real time. Not in the distant future. He deals with it now. Whatever you have done, whatever's been done to you, he actually does that now. I read one commentator said this, if, if God didn't save Moses in the way that he did, in the crazy circumstances that he was able to save Moses through, then it's truly doubtful whether he can save anyone at all. If God can't come up with a way to save Moses in the midst of a literal holocaust, if God can't figure out a way to save and protect Moses' life, I mean, think about the other thing. Pharaoh's daughter had pity and mercy on the child. God stirred in her heart to do that. It wasn't coincidence. If God can't work all these things out, then, then he's not able to save any of us. But the good news is that he did figure this all out, and he did work this all out, and he did orchestrate all this to save Moses. And so if he can work out a great salvation in Moses' life, he can work out a great salvation in your life, no matter what you've done. Here's the second thing. God offers salvation that defeats evil. This really, this really I, I think, is important to note. Think about the evil that was going on in that day that was really pushed by Pharaoh. Pharaoh, if you want to really understand kind of some more depths of this, Pharaoh is a picture. It's not, he's not actually him. He's a picture of Satan, of the devil. In the story of Exodus, he is a picture of the enemy Satan. Think about it. He hates God's people. He hates what God is doing. That's exactly what Satan is. He hates you if you're a believer in Christ, and he hates what God is doing in this world. It's exactly what Pharaoh was doing. God, he hated that God was allowing the, the Hebrew people to grow. He hated the works of God in the Hebrews' lives, and he hated God's people. Satan hates you. If you are a follower of Christ, he hates you. There's not one single thing that he thinks about you that's ever good. Now, if that's true, think about the evil that Pharaoh then does in Exodus, right? He goes step by step. First, it's let's just try and stop these people with hardships like slavery and stuff. Then he quietly says to a couple of people, kind of in secret, hey, that's not working. So let's try this. Let's try killing some of their children in secret. That doesn't work. And so what does it do? He goes to the extreme. Hey, Egyptian people, gather around and start throwing those babies into the Nile River. There, there's a principle in there that, that evil itself, sin and evil, always thirsts and hungers for more. And you, you've got to be really careful. Because if you're playing with evil things, sinful things in your life, things that you're convicted about, things that you know are not good for you, things that you know are ungodly, that God says are, are sin, that, are, that are, should be away from us. But if you continue just to just kind of dabble in it just a little bit, recognize that sin, evil, and the devil himself are always hungry for more. And so if you want to just, ah, it's just a little bit of scrubbing. Ah, it's just a little bit of inappropriate, you know, stuff that I watch on the internet. Ah, it's just a little bit of stealing. Ah, it's just a little bit of cheating. Soon enough, that becomes more. And then it becomes more. Sin and evil always wants to spread. It never wants to be contained in something small in your life and let you think that it's, oh, it's just, it's just okay. It's okay. It's a little thing. Sin's always going to try and extract more from your life. So we have to be very careful. 
But here's the good news again, that no matter what is happening, God offers a salvation that defeats evil. It defeats sin in your life, and it defeats the sin in our world. It overcomes that. The evil in our world cannot stop what God's doing in your life. So if you are saved in Christ, you are safe from the schemes of the enemy. You may stumble, you may fall, you may still make mistakes, yes, but the enemy cannot have you, and that is the beauty of the salvation that you have in Jesus because he overcame death and defeated it once and for all, and he rose from the grave. Last one. God offers salvation that is his work from start to finish. We just have to trust him. That's what it is, too. We always say, place your faith in Jesus. Well, you need to trust that Jesus is the only one that can save you today, and he's the same and the only one that will save you tomorrow. He's the same and the only one that will save you when you eventually pass into eternity and have to face judgment day. He's the only one that will save, and he's the same one that started whatever that faith was in you in the beginning. He started it. He'll see it all the way through to the end. He did that in Moses' life. He saw Moses' birth. He made sure that in the midst of all these other babies dying, Moses survived for three months. And then when Moses was placed into that basket, he made sure that that basket floated over to the reeds and was placed directly in the reeds. And he also made sure that Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter, who at that moment was going to have pity and compassion on this little baby. And he also made sure that then that Pharaoh's daughter would receive what Moses' sister said to him. You ever think about that? Moses' sister is just a Hebrew slave, and she has the audacity, she has the courage to walk up to one of Pharaoh's own daughters and say, listen, if you'd like, I will allow, I'll find a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby for you, to take care of this baby so that it can grow. That took courage. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, do it. And then Moses goes to his mother for another two to three years and then is returned to Pharaoh's daughter back in the household. And you could still think, man, well, man, what if Pharaoh found out that his daughter had a Hebrew child that was supposed to be dead in the Nile, but somehow saved it? Wouldn't he get mad? Guess what? God protected even Moses from that. He sees it all the way through. So wherever you are in your faith, if your your faith is it, bless you, if your faith is just kind of getting going and you're just trying to figure this relationship and your trust in Christ out, God's going to maintain that. If you've been walking with Jesus and, and you've been seeing and experiencing a, a relationship with Jesus for a while, he's going to continue working and growing that in you. He's not going to just leave you to fend for yourself now. He didn't leave Moses to fend for himself. You will find out next week that he grew up in the palace, right? He grew up in the ways of the, of the Egyptians. God sees these things through to the end. And he sees your, your trust in him through to the end. It's not up to you. This is one of the things that I'm, I'm very passionate about, and I'll be done. So many people think that their ability to hold on to Jesus is like my ability to hold on to this. Or earlier today, I was with some high school students at a camp up in, um, uh, up in like King or, or around Hanging Rock, and we were on a rock climbing wall, right? It is not about your ability, your grip strength to hold on to Jesus. Because today, earlier, I was on this one part, and there was one of these little, like, knob things that you have to hold on to on a rock climb wall that was spinning like a top. They hadn't tightened it. And I literally was like, I can't hold on much longer. So the only way I'm going to reach, because I'm also vertically challenged, if you haven't noticed, I'm pretty short. So I couldn't reach up to the next level because this one was loose. So at some point, I just had to muster up the courage. I got my feet square on the pegs below me, and I literally tried to do, like, a frog jump to reach up, and I didn't. And then I fell down. Uh, luckily, I was on a, on, a, on a string, so it's all good. 
But that's not how your relationship with Jesus works. It's not like, I'm holding on, Jesus. I just want to hold on a little bit longer. Give me the strength. And then, and then, oh, I'm losing my grip. And then you fall. It has nothing to do with that. That's not a picture of your relationship with Christ. Your picture of your relationship with Christ is this, that he holds on to you, firmly placed in his hands, and he never lets go. Once you are his, you are always his. And once you are saved, you are always saved. And once you are placed into his hands, nothing, not yourself, not the devil himself, no amount of sin, no amount of bad things in your life, no matter whatever comes into your life, can ever remove you from his hands. If you want proof of that, you can read John 6 and John 8 later tonight and John 10, and you'll see all those things are true. 6, 8, 10. Just easy to remember. Just read those two chapters tonight, and you'll see that I'm not making this up. It's in God's word. But that's the truth of our faith, that he holds on to you from beginning to end. If you need that salvation, it's, it's available to you. Trust in him. And you'll see it can help you. It can defeat evil, and he'll, he'll keep it going from start to end. All right, let's pray. Lord, I just thank you again for these students. I thank you for this time that we get to spend together each week in, in your word. I just pray, Lord, that it would continue to move us and convict us, bring us more closer to you. Lord, I just pray for those who, they feel like their faith is weak. And God, they feel like they're the one who's trying to hold on to you. Just remind them tonight that you are holding on so strongly to them. That, Lord, you are the one who has started their faith and you will see it out to completion. God, for those who haven't placed their trust in you yet, they have not trusted you to forgive them of their sin. Maybe they haven't even recognized what their sin is. Lord, I pray that tonight you would begin to work in their hearts and their minds, and they would see that evil and sinful things are destructive and dangerous, but they will always desire and seek to devour more of who we are. And so we need to separate from those things. We need to put them away. We need to ask you to save us from those evil and wicked things. God, we know that you are faithful and good and love us so much, and you are faithful to do it. So we place our trust in you. God, I pray for the students in here to continue seeking you and leaning further into you for their hope, full assurance of things that are to come, and a conviction that you will carry these things out to completion. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Reach night is next week. We're here from 6 to 8.30. We'll have dinner for you, water balloons. Bring a friend. Make sure you dress to get wet because it is going to get wet outside afterwards. Have a great night. The gym is open.